All right, we're going to go ahead and begin. Um, so we can spend some time on this, on this particular uh, model. First, what I want to do, I'm going to explain the model to you, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to take uh, at least two of those very difficult passages we looked at. We're going to take Galatians 4, and I hope we can do 2 Corinthians 3, which are two difficult, uh, very difficult passages that directly refers to Sinai in a very de- kind of a derogatory way. And we're going to look at what that, what those, uh, how that fits in this, this model and helps, helps us actually uh, uh, get, get this model. <clears throat> I want to start with a story. And you have, uh, you have here a chart that also occurs in the book. Uh, and what we're going to do now is just kind of explain the whole process here. But I want to go back before, before the creation of our world and just think with me for a moment. If we could zoom back the video uh, or DVD and keep going back in segments until it was before the creation of anything, before there were any planets or any universe or any angels. Or, um, what, what would we have back as far back as you could conceive? What would you have? You would have God, right? And how do we understand God? If the Bible says God is love, how do we understand God? I mean, what, what is God? Who is God? Pardon me? An eternal, being. An eternal being, okay. We understand God in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? I'm going to kind of accelerate this just a little bit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and if we, if we could somehow observe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting in their, be, before they brought anything into creation, we would have, you would be watching, you'd be, you'd be observing for the first time the concept of covenant. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in covenant relationship with each other. And what that means is they were totally given to the welfare of the other. The statement Jesus made that all the law and the prophets is summed up in this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that essentially is the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the way they relate to each other. Totally committed to one another. And, when they, and so that's the, that's the origin of the everlasting covenant. And as, as they began to bring creation into being, they just essentially enfolded creation into, that, into the covenant relationship they had with one another. They made that same commitment to their creation, to the angels to begin with, and then, and then ultimately to mankind, to humankind. When, when Adam was created, Adam and Eve were created, God was in covenant relationship with them. So you have Adam. And so covenant isn't something that just began with Adam. It began eternally back. That's why it's called in Scripture everlasting covenant. There are, there are a couple of places in Scripture that refer to everlasting covenant. I mean, there are 13 places, but... But two or three of them are very clearly referring to this primordial covenant that even before, even before this earth. And you have Adam, uh, and this is the period I call this little thing here is the, uh, is the covenant of, of creation, where God's in covenant relationship with Adam and Eve. And then you have the fall. And at the, and at the fall, um, you have God instituting or just adapting his, his everlasting commitment to the welfare of the human family 
into what theologians refer to as the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. And everything here grows out of this. The, the everlasting covenant is the, the covenant of grace, which is God now dealing with, with uh, um, sinful creation. This is the first time that we know of this ever happened in the universe. That you have beings coming into existence. Adam and Eve weren't created sinful. Lucifer wasn't created sinful. But now Adam and Eve's children come into existence with sinful natures. And as far back as we know, that's been revealed to us, in eternity past, this has never happened before. And so God has a totally new situation, not something he didn't think about prior to that, not something he hadn't made provision for, but it's a totally new environment now where God has, has children coming into existence and it's just gotten worse after, as time goes on and gets even worse yet in some areas of, of uh, uh, even you know, in a city, you have areas where you have children born into wonderful families and children born into ghetto situations where, as uh, Sebastian has been telling about, you know, you're, just, you're thinking gang from childhood up because that's the way you survive and, and it's just life. And God has this to deal with. And his covenantal commitment to his, to his human family deals with all of that. And the, the, these promises that constitute the new covenant, this is the promise that God makes. In a sense, this is his will. And the Bible says in order for a will to take effect, someone has to what? Someone has to die. And so when Jesus dies, essentially this becomes, this becomes it, it, it's, Jesus' death is the center of gravity. It, the, the effect of his death reaches all the way back. The forgiveness it provided reaches all the way back to, be, to the beginning and, and uh, all the way forward. And the death of Jesus, in a sense, we could, we could uh, say the new, co the new covenant is God's will. And we are not only benefactors of that will, but what <coughs> once we come to faith in Christ and, and, and are baptized, we become benefactors of that. Uh, not only benefactors of that will, but we become um, ad, uh, administrators of the will. We become executors of the will. And the first job that an executor has is to contact the people who are in the will. If, if you had a relative died and left you in their will, um, you would get a notice from the executor of that will that you were in the will. It wouldn't spell it out yet, exactly what that's about. You'd have to, they have to go through a legal process before they can reveal the details. But that's what, a Bennett, that's, that's what an executor does. And we are all executors of God's will. We're, part of our mission is to let people know that God has these promises has made, made to them. There's many people in the world today who do not know this. They do not know that, this, that God has left them this, that this is, their, this is their, their birthright. Because of his covenantal commitment, every human being has this birthright. Now we have to buy it, just like someone can, be, can have a provision in the will, but if they're never notified about it, if they never know anything about it, um, and people and they can't find them anywhere, so they can't notify them, they can't claim their portion of the will. They could be billionaires and not know it and die in poverty. So that's why God says, I want people to know it. I, I'm, not, I'm inviting you to be, a, to be an executor and go tell them. Well, that's what's going, going on during the, during the covenant of grace. And then you have these various other, um, you have, he makes a covenant with Noah and a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with, with uh, um, then it's Sinai. And with each 
covenantal relation, with each covenant that God makes with his people, he's, he's revealing a little bit more and a little bit more than the covenant that he revealed at the fall. In the fall, you have in Genesis 3.15, you have the, um, where God is addressing the serpent and says that I'm going to put enmity between, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you're going to, um, you're going to harm the heel of, the, of, of her seed, but, the, but her seed will eventually crush uh, uh, your head. And that's, the, that's essentially this, this pro, these provisions are, are, are encapsulated in that, in that first revelation that he gave. And then with Noah, you have the first reference to everlasting covenant comes in Noah in, in Genesis chapter nine. And then you have, with Abraham, you have uh, um, even more revealed the, the, the role of faith. And uh, God makes certain temporal as well as eternal promises to Abraham. Um, and then you have, uh, with, when you have Mount Sinai, when God gave the covenant at Mount Sinai, this was the fullest revelation of his character he had ever given on the hum- to the human race. It's the first time that the Bible records where God tells people he loves them. Doesn't mean they didn't know that, doesn't mean it wasn't passed on orally, but it's not explicit until, until Sinai. Um, he tells them he loves them at Sinai. He tells them he's a gracious God at Sinai. And many of the, for the first time he tells them he's a merciful God is at Sinai. So the, Sin- the Sinai, covenant at Sinai was a huge revelation of the character of God. And you, you, have, you just have a greater and greater revelation of the character of God until you come to Jesus who, who is God and he, his revelation of course is, is enormous. Um, so, what, so we have, and, and during the period of the development of the, of the covenantal revelations that God's giving, we have um, um, the, uh, the historical Old Covenant. And the historical New Covenant. And what, what determined the difference between the historical Old Covenant and the historical New Covenant? Yes, that Jesus Christ came in the middle. Jesus comes in the middle, and that makes everything new. It makes the old, old it makes the commandment to love God new, and to love one another makes that new. makes makes the promises new. makes everything new. That's why that's why these are better promises after Jesus comes, and we actually see them fulfilled in His life. They're the same promises, but they're even better promises. Hebrew talks about the new covenant promises being better promises. And often that is thought of as the promise that Israel made that I'm going to keep your law as opposed to the new covenant that God's going to put his law in our hearts and minds. But God made this same promise to Israel that he would put his his law in their hearts and minds. And I've given you the scriptures for that in your outline. Um, He said he's going to circumcise their hearts so that they they will be able to obey him. And that he he put his his commands in in their hearts. Um, and in their mouths, uh, actually says that in Deuteronomy 30. So, but there were better promises once we saw them lived out in the life of Jesus. So what we have, uh, what I call above the line here, we have a historical old covenant and a historical new covenant. Just in the sense that it, even though it's the same promises, Jesus comes in the middle and that makes everything new um, after he comes in the middle. But what you have below the line is something different. Below the line, you have the reflection of what 
God said in Hebrews 8 when he said it's, that the new covenant will not be like the one I made with those I brought out of Egypt because they didn't do what? They didn't obey my, my covenant. Um, and so we have, uh, we have below the line is we have an old covenant experience. and a new covenant experience. So when did the old covenant experience begin? This is an experience that as you have in your outline is where the gospel is perverted and externalized. It's an experience that's not based on faith, and it's just a, it's what Sebastian was talking about last night and today about, about li uh, living a hypocritical life. It's one thing on the outside, it's what the, um, was it Sebastian today, or was it, was it uh, um, Pastor John that was talking about the um, Marquise, passing about, uh, talking about uh, uh, having a form of godliness but denying its power. One of them was talking about that. That's what this is. It's just a form of godliness. It's an externalized religious experience. This is the heart experience based on faith and, and full openness to God. Which comes first in this? The new covenant experience or the old covenant experience? Based on, based on his, his, if you look at it historically, the new because Adam was, was, uh, uh, had this. And also historically, really the historical um, old, the, the promises of the new covenant were, were here. So we could even call, it, call this historical new covenant as well. This really was new covenant in that the promises were, were here. So what we have is we have um, historical, looking at the, the, the covenants from a historical perspective above the line and from an experiential perspective below the line. And when, the, when Paul is talking in Galatians, in Romans, and in 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about Old Covenant and New Covenant, this is what he has in mind. He has, the, he has, an, he has an Old Covenant response and a New Covenant response to God in mind. He's not talking about, about the historical Old and New Covenant. This is pure gospel up here. All the way through, this is pure gospel. Gospel, gospel. And we could say gospel here, but, um, so, but it was just new, the new covenant promises. They were, this was integrated into their hearts, so they were created with that, with that in it. This is an actually saving gospel. And as soon as Adam fell, this is everything God has done. This is the, the covenants that God made with us were pure gospel. They were grace-based, they were gospel-bearing, they were mission-intended, they were faith-inducing. Um, all the way through, this is gospel. This is the gospel rejected, or perverted, or externalized, and the gospel accepted, received by faith, internalized by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the gospel 
and the law of God under the influence of the sinful nature. This is the law of God and the, the gospel under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, and what I want to do now is, uh, I think, go to, a, go to a passage, and we'll see if we can see this actually reflected in a passage of Scripture here. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4, that passage we, we studied earlier in Galatians chapter 4. And beginning with verse 21. I don't know where our microphone is now. Yes, beginning with verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5 and verse 1. Okay. What I'd like you to do is there are a number of contrasting terms he uses here for these two covenants. And he clearly is talking about two covenants here, is he not? In verse uh, 24, he says these women he's talking about represent two covenants, right? So we have the two covenants in view here. And all all biblical scholars say this is what he has here in mind are the Old and New Covenants. All right. Now, as you go down, beginning with verse 21, you go down through this list, you're going to have contrasts. He'll be con he'll be, it's like we have these two columns. And in one column, we're going to put characteristics of the Old Covenant. and the other column, we're going to put characteristics of the New Covenant. I think it'll be quite obvious which are which as we go down through this. So what I'd like you to do is to... Um, is to just give me these contrasts and we'll write them down as you give them to me here in, uh, in this passage. And let me know what verse you're finding these in. We want to use the, the language of the Bible. What language does your, your Bible have a, a contrast in the Old and New Covenants? Pardon me? And which one is Hagar? Old? Okay. Is there a corresponding... Someone correspond on the other side to Hagar? Sarah. Sarah, okay. 
any other contrasts? Okay, Mount Sinai. It has children who are slaves, right? Okay, and what about the other side? Is there something con con contrast here on the other side? Okay, which is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is new? Okay, it does, doesn't it? Okay, this is Jerusalem on earth. And this is Jerusalem in heaven. Heaven is actually referred to in Revelation as what? The New Jerusalem, that's right. Okay, what about the children being slaves over here? What do you have corresponding to that? Children of promise. You have promise. Okay. And what else do we have? Any other contrasts in here? Okay. So you have a persecutor, do you? Are some persecutors? Okay, so this is persecutor and you have persecuted over here then, wouldn't you? Persecuted those born by the power of the Spirit. So per and the persecuted. And then yours is born in the ordinary way. What verse is that? Born in the ordinary uh, way. Verse 29. Okay, who else has verse 29? Instead of saying born in the ordinary way, it says born what? according to the flesh. That's the actual Greek, born according to the flesh. So born according to <coughs> flesh. Born according to the flesh. And the other is born according to what? Okay, born put of the spirit, of spirit. Okay, anything else? Okay, bond woman and free woman. Some actually have bondage and freedom. So I'm going to put bondage over here. Because if you look at chapter 5 and verse 1, what does that say? Chapter 5 and verse 1. The yoke of slavery. So this is bondage and slavery over here. And freedom over there. Okay, and you have one more that I want to try to get here, and that is, um, yeah, it's going to be found in, uh, in verse 30. The free woman's son is going to do what? Be an heir, right? Okay, and that's the free woman's son will be an heir. 
and the way mine, <coughs> the NIV has it is, the free woman's son is gonna share in the inheritance with the, or the, uh, get rid of the slave woman and her son. Um, slave woman's son will not share in the inheritance. So this will be no, no inheritance. This is heir and inheritance. And this is um, not share, will not share in the inheritance. Not share in the inheritance. Okay, so here you have the old covenant listed as an example of Hagar, Mount Sinai, the Jerusalem on the earth, uh, children of slavery, a slave child, born according to the flesh, persecutor, bondage and slavery, not sharing the inheritance. And on the new side you have, you have Sarah, uh, Jerusalem in heaven, children of promise, born of the spirit, persecuted, freedom and, and an heir. Anything over here sound positive? In the old covenant, nothing positive. How about the new covenant? Nothing negative over there, right? So, if, in fact, this is describing the covenant God made with his people at Sinai, which lasted for 1,500 years until Jesus comes, that means all these characteristics were characteristics of those people. They, were, they could be represented by Hagar, um, slavery, and being children of slavery, born according to the flesh, persecutors in bondage, and they would not share in the inheritance. Now what I would like to do, as opposed to the, after Jesus comes, and people who, who accept the gospel after Jesus comes have that experience. What I would like to do is to now look at, uh, do a little word study, and we'll do this as quickly as we can, of, uh, of flesh and spirit. Um, look at John chapter three, John chapter three. Well, this is introduced early on in uh, the New Testament, John chapter three, and somebody read please verses three through six of John chapter three. John chapter So any contrast here between the flesh and the spirit in this passage, what would the contrast be in the language of the Bible? Yes, being born of the spirit and the flesh. Okay, this is there. He talks about being born of the spirit and born of the flesh. Maybe we should just write that down. Um, born of flesh. <coughs> and born, born of the Spirit. Um, born of the Spirit. And what he says is that those who are born of the flesh are that, uh, that, that flesh can only give birth to flesh, right? Flesh can only birth flesh. And on the other hand, you have spirit gives birth to spirit. Anything else? Only those born of the spirit can 
Okay, only those born of the Spirit. Only, now turn to, turn to uh, Romans 8. We'll see the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Romans 8. Um, and in Romans 8, what I'd like you to do is um, by the way, we're on page four. We're on page four. I should have, I'm sorry I didn't tell you that of the outline. <clears throat> page four of the outline, you see these chart, this, uh, these blank spaces here. And if you want to be writing some of this down, we're in the, right now we're in the top section of us, flesh and spirit. We first went to Old Covenant, New Covenant in Galatians 4. You want to go back to that, you can write some of that in. Um, and we're now looking at flesh and spirit, contrasting flesh and spirit. And Romans 8, verses 5 through 14. Who has the next uh, microphone here? Okay, Romans 8, 5 to 14. Okay, now if you have, if you have the uh, um, NIV, it is in places saying flesh, in many of these places it's saying what? Nature. The sinful nature. That's correct. That's how they're interpreting it, sinful nature. Okay, go on, please. Beginning with verse 9, Romans 8. Okay, I think that's probably, probably good enough. Let's just stop there for now, just for the sake of time. All right, I want you to give me some more contrast between the flesh and the spirit that grow out of this passage. Okay, death. Those who are of the flesh yield death. And what about contrast to this? Is life, right? Peace and life. Life and peace. Okay, go ahead. Okay, cannot, if you're of the flesh, you cannot please God. Hostile to God. Not subject to God's law. We could go on. You have to you set your mind on the 
uh, fear of the flesh, you set your mind constantly on the things of the flesh, and of the spirit, you set your mind on the things of the spirit, and so forth. Let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, chapter 5. And somebody please read verses 20, 19 through 25. Okay, so how would we summarize what we just read in terms of flesh and spirit? Flesh is characterized by what? Okay. Immorality, sin, we'll put wickedness here. Immorality, sin, it's all involved in that. And the spirit by... Yeah. By... Let's say spiritual fruits, um, all all kinds of good things, right? All kinds of good things there. All right, um, let's go to Philippians chapter three, the last one on this one. Philippians chapter three, and somebody please read verses four through six of Philippians chapter three. Okay, so um, this is a different kind of thing. This is all, sounds like it's very evil, doing, and, and the list we let of, of the works of the flesh in, in uh, Galatians 5, which is everything wicked, everything evil. Uh, so many, uh, 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 like immorality was another way we, we were describing that. Um, but here, he talks, he talks as a work of the flesh, or manifestation of the flesh, how does he stand before the law with regard to God in terms of his flesh? Blameless, faultless, blameless, right? So uh, now the NIV has a very interesting way to, to express that. And you've got the NIV up here. How does it express it? Okay. It's the, I'll read it for you. It's legalistic righteousness. He says, with regard to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. So. I'm going to put down here uh, legalistic righteousness. Uh, 
And what we find when we, when we uh, uh, by, that, by the Philippians 3, which is a whole new twist on the whole concept of flesh, is that legalism is put in the same category as all these wicked, wicked things. It's called a, a work of the flesh. It ultimately results in death. Um, and legalism gives birth to legalism. People sometimes ask me, what are, what's the best series of Bible studies that you know? Uh, there's no perfect series of Bible studies. But whether people, when, they, when they're given Bible studies, whether they come to a legalistic conclusion or, or a faith-based conclusion and experience is based on the person sharing the lessons. It's the person carrying the lessons. That's what makes all the difference in the world. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And, um, but it's, what's very interesting here is Paul has a... According to, the, according to the scripture, you have the sinful nature, which is the flesh, sinful nature, working itself out in two different ways. On the one hand, it's working out in acts of wickedness. And the other one, it's legalism. And Satan doesn't care where he gets us as long as he gets us in one of these, one of these areas. Um, does that mean we never do anything wrong? No. Does that mean a Christian never does anything wrong? No, it doesn't. We need to be forgiven for that. Does that mean a Christian never has legalistic motivation? No, it doesn't. But God is always trying to purify us out of all of this. And if we think, if we, think we don't need God, which is irreligion, um, or we think that we're... We're doing fine. We, don't, we never need to go forward to an appeal because we're the fine ones. And we're glad to see other people need, need to respond to that appeal. We're more like the, we, we, our prayers are more like the, pub, like the Pharisee than the publican. God, I'm glad I'm not like some of those people I pass on the side of the road when I'm driving down the highway. Um, that can be a manifestation. It doesn't mean we're not a Christian, but it means there's something that God wants to, God has to purify that. He's working to purify that. A boastful yes, boastful pride. This is Satan gets some of us by by pulling us outside the church and drawing us this way. Others he can get um, get us right in the church. But you have the manifestation of the flesh going both directions. Now, I'd like to do one more real quick word study, and then we're going to come back to our chart and show how this all fits. It seems like we're kind of going around, but this is. It's important to, to, uh, to nail this down. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to look at the words inheritance, inheritor, um, and heir, and see how these words end up in Scripture. Um, heir, inherit, inheritance, Somebody read chapter or Matthew five verse five, please. Okay, so um, this talks about inheriting the earth. Now, is that a positive thing? Yes. Yes. It's talking about the afterlife, right? In essence. Okay. Let's go now to um, Matthew nineteen. 
and verse 29. Matthew 19 and verse 29. Somebody read that. Okay, so here we inherit eternal life. Okay, now let's go to um, Matthew 25 and verse 34. Matthew 25, verse 34. Blessed of God, um, the, the blessed of God, inherit um, the kingdom again. Okay, and let's look at First uh, Corinthians chapter six. Verses 9 and 10, please, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So this is a pattern. I don't think we need to read more right now. It's a pattern, and you can follow this all the way through the New Testament. We can read these words almost in almost every instance where the word inherit or inheritor or heir or inheritance come in. You have uh, this same pattern that those who, are, who, are, who belong to God are going to inherit the earth, they inherit eternal life. If they're blessed of God, they inherit eternal life. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you remember when we read the, the, uh, about the works of the flesh, it said if you are involved in the works of the flesh, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, uh, we saw that in, in Galatians chapter five, that they will not, uh, somewhere here, not inherit the kingdom, should be in there. Um, okay, the, now let's come back when we see the, the stark contrast, is there anything in this list of, of uh, the characteristics of the flesh that you would want to have in your life? Anything in the list of the characteristics of the spirit that you would not want to have in your life? Okay, now let's come back again to the two covenants that are discussed in Galatians chapter four. Um, are there any flag words you can see here that should tell us what this is talking about? Do you see any flag words in the, let's look down the list here. Hagar, Mount Sinai, born according to the flesh. What do you notice here? Flesh, persecutors, and you have over here, you have spirit. And what about down here, inheritance? You will not inherit here, right? 
you'll not inherit. And this is, you're going to be an heir. You're going to be an inheritor if you're here. So if, in fact, the two covenants that Paul has in mind, I know he, I know he mentioned Sinai there. We have to think about that. But if he's talking about the law that God gave his people at Sinai, if he's talking about the covenant that he made with his people at Sinai, if that's described, if that's what he's describing, this covenant here in Hebrews, in Galatians chapter um, 4, then what were these people, were everybody who tried to be faithful to the covenant God entered into them with them here, what was their destiny? It was death, wasn't it? Death, because the, the destiny of those who are of the flesh are death, only do wickedness or, or, or be legalistic. That's the only, they, they couldn't. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. If that covenant is what he's describing here, the covenant God made with them was a covenant of flesh. They can only lead people to be born according to the flesh and to not share in the inheritance with the free woman or the inheritance of the saints, then, then, uh, um, then these people were damned for that whole period of time until Jesus came. They lived in a covenant that if they tried to be faithful to, they could not be saved. Can you see that? You can't see that? I mean, can you see that, that, that that's the only conclusion you can come to if you're saying that's, he's talking about the covenant God made with his people at Sinai. Um, he's not talking about that, he's talking about this. He's talking about the war between the flesh and the spirit. When he's referring to one covenant there, to the old covenant, He's referring this character, these characteristics here are characteristics of an old covenant experience. They're of, of an illegitimate relationship to, to the gospel, of a, of, a, of a rejection of the gospel or an acceptance in a legalistic way of the gospel. That's what, the, that's what this covenant in Galatians 4 is referring to. It is not referring to the covenant God made with his people at Sinai. Can you see that? That's exactly right. It couldn't be. At least they couldn't, at least if they tried to be faithful to that covenant, they could not be saved. There's no other conclusion you can come to. What do they say about that? Like, well, they, don't, they basically don't address it. Um, uh, they, don't, they don't address it except to say that there are, there are some, the, there's a, a Presbyterian model that says that, um, that the covenant God made with Abraham was a salvation covenant, and this is not a salvation covenant. Therefore, even though they were under this covenant, they could only be saved if they lived by this covenant, not by the covenant he made with the people at Sinai. Now, the reason this becomes, this is important, is because if this is, if this is the covenant Paul's talking about that only leads people into bondage, uh, then the Ten Commandments, because that covenant was called in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it calls this covenant the covenant of the Ten Commandments. It actually calls it the Ten Commandments. That was the name that was given to that covenant, was the Ten Commandments. Um, so when we're out teaching people the Ten Commandments, we're teaching them Old Covenant, and we're, we're drawing them back into bondage, we're making them persecutors of the, of the true saints of God, but you'd have to also say that the, all those in Hebrews chapter 11 were characterized this way. 
because they lived under, most of those lived under, this, under, under the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. Most of the people in Hebrews 11. But we've already seen those were new covenant people. So here's the point. The point is that when Paul, in, the, in all the writings of Paul, I'm not talking about the book of Hebrews, and, and if we include Hebrews in the writings of Paul, we have to say that was, he had a different thing in mind there, but in all the Paul, in Paul's letters, when he refers to the old covenant, um, he's referring to, not to the covenant God made with his people at Sinai, but to the way they responded to that covenant. And it wasn't just, old covenant goes all the way back to Adam. Once Adam fell, Adam was in an old covenant relationship with God. And when, when, when anybody who responds in faith to God and dependence upon God is in a new covenant relationship with God. And the new covenant is based on the four promises that God made in Hebrews chapter eight. This is the new covenant where God is constantly calling us higher and higher and higher and giving us opportunities to grow in our relationship with him in respect to these promises that he's made to us. That's, um, that's the essence of the, of the way that the, those difficult passages in the writings of Paul have to be understood. They can't be understood any other way and make sense out of them. Now, um, maybe before we go to one more passage to look at and see how it works in that passage, I should just see what questions we have. Okay, remember, remember in, the, in verses eight and nine how, what he said the fault was of that covenant? What's that? Yes, he fought, found fault with the people, right? That they weren't faithful to the covenant. It was and it wasn't. And I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, let me come back to that in just a moment. We get this question. Right, right. Um, let me describe, let me go to, go to this now. Let me go to Hebrews. Um, and I'm going to put here Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. Now, this is another twist on this. And if you grasp this, then you've got the whole thing. And I'm trying to do here in just a very short period of time, trying to explain something that, that took the whole book to kind of unpack. But... Um, in Hebrews <coughs> 7 through 10, and if you're not acquainted with this passage, then I understand why this would be, isn't gonna make a whole lot of sense to you, but this is primarily discussing the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, and the Old Testament sacrifices. Top of page five, okay. 
top of page five of the uh, outline. Yes, the unique place of, of Hebrews here. Um, and when Jesus came, what happened to the Old Testament priesthood? It was fulfilled in Christ, right? Because Christ became the new high priest, the new and permanent high priest. And what happened to the sacrificial system when Jesus came? It was fulfilled, right? Christ was our sacrifice, right? Our eternal sacrifice. So Jesus brought an end to this sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In that sense, the new covenant does have a historical difference in it because the, the priesthood and the sacrifices were different in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament period than they were in the New Testament period. So Hebrews looks at the Old and New Covenants from an above-the-line perspective. Above-the-line perspective is a historical perspective. Below the line is an experiential perspective. There's a huge difference. And in that sense, this can be said to be a better covenant because these sacrifices could never take away sins. And these priests were sinful. They had, to be, had, they had to have their own sins atoned for. So there is a sense in which this is a, this is a better covenant because we, now, because we have a perfect high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us and was the perfect sacrifice to take away sins. So from the perspective of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we, have, um, we, we, do, have a, we do have a difference in the, in the historical uh, uh, configuration of the covenants. We believe the moral law is the same. That has never changed. The moral principles upon which called the need for the sacrifice and that, that, uh, um, that God's writing in our hearts and minds, this has never changed. This has always been the same. The law of God has always been the same from beginning, from the very beginning. But the, <clears throat> the, the administration uh, of the priesthood and the sacrifices um, were fulfilled in Christ and then he becomes our, our, our priest and our sacrifice. In that sense, it's different. So when you look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, <coughs> Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, which is one of the passages we read at the very beginning of our time together. Somebody want to read that for us again? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. Okay, there he's talking historically, and he's saying that, that, this, that the, the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament sacrifices um, are now obsolete. And the new has come, so this is, this is now passing away. There still were sacrifices going on in the temple, but the temple had been, the, the veil in the temple had been torn between the holy and the most holy place had been torn from top to bottom according to Matthew uh, 27, 51. And so <clears throat> while the sacrifices were still taking place in the temple until 40 years later in AD 70, when the Romans came and destroyed the temple, um, they weren't recognized by God anymore. Uh, the atoning sacrifice was the sacrifice that Jesus had made on the cross. 
Now, you do have, what's interesting is you have um, the description of the new covenant coming just before verse 13. In chapter eight, you have God, first of all, in verse seven through nine, introducing the new covenant. And then in chapters um, 10 and 11, he gives these, I mean, verses uh, uh, 10 through 12, he gives these promises. So why would he give these promises? And then immediately after giving those promises, why would he say, by calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete? And what's obsolete is aging and, dis and will disappear. How, how do these promises fit into this? Were they linked with just the sacrifices and the priesthood? Pardon me? Yes, they're the gospel promises. I'm not, I'm not describing this in a very organized way here, and I apologize for that, so it, doesn't, it probably doesn't come across making a lot of sense. But if you would uh, keep your finger here in Hebrews chapter eight for a moment and turn to Revelation chapter 20 uh, for the at the millennium, and I'm gonna insert another idea here. In Revelation chapter 20 in the millennium, <clears throat> And in the first three verses, you have the binding of Satan at the beginning of the millennium. And then in verse four, if somebody would read verses four and five for us, please, of uh, Okay, now let's follow this through for a moment. In verse four, uh, what is verse four talking about? Um, what, what, what time during the millennium does verse four take place? At the beginning, during, during the millennium, or at the end? Verse four. Okay, when it talks about judging taking place, that's, that's during the millennium, right? What about right at the end where it says they came to life and reigned with him for a thousand years? <coughs> when did they come to life? At the second coming, is that the beginning or during or at the end of the millennium? It's the beginning of the millennium, right? Okay, then in verse five, when it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, when's the, when are the thousand years gonna end? Well, obviously at the end of the thousand years, right? Okay. <laughs> But now the very next phrase, read the very next phrase after that. Why would it say the rest of the dead did not come to life till a thousand years are ended? This is the first resurrection. Why would it say that? First resurrection of the wicked. Is there a second resurrection of the wicked? Yes. When is that? Yeah, there isn't, right? What is that phrase, this is the first resurrection, referring to at the end of verse five? The resurrection of the righteous, that's correct. So what you have, the NIV has caught, the, has caught this. And what do you notice about the NIV there in verse five? 
It ha what does it have in parentheses? The rest of the dead. The rest of the dead. Um, the rest of the dead um, did not come to life. It's talking about the, the until a thousand years are ended. It talks about the thousand years being ended in parenthesis. Now think of it. Think of your Bible, and then it. Then it says, this is the first resurrection. So just think, if you took the, that phrase that talks about the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, just take that out for a moment. And read from the end of verse 4 to that last phrase of verse 5. And does that seem to follow there? Because the end of verse 4, it says that the, um, those who had been beheaded for the word of God came to life and waited with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Does that seem to make sense that way? If he took out that statement about the rest of the dead don't live till a thousand years, don't come to life till a thousand years are ended, that's a parenthetical st statement. Because while he's talking about the first resurrection, he knows the, the author, John here, is knowing his people are going to say, well, what about the people that, what about the other people? So he throws in that sentence, well, they don't come to life till the end of the year, but I'm talking right now about the first resurrection. Yes, he's really talking there about the first resurrection through that period of time. But he's throwing in, in case you're wondering, well, what about the other people? Well, they're not going to come back to life till the, till the thousand years are ended. Today, we would put that in, in parentheses, so it wasn't confusing. If you just read it like this, it's a bit confusing, unless it's in parentheses. But the NIV has really clarified that by putting it in parentheses, right? Okay, now if we go back to Hebrews in chapter 8, In Hebrews chapter 8, he's been talking, beginning with chapter 7, all the way through chapter, chapter uh, 7 and into, into chapter 8 where he introduces a new covenant. Then he goes on in chapters 9 and 10 to go back again to talk about the, the, uh, the sacrifices and priesthood. All the way through this period, he's talking about the sacrifices and priesthood. But there in Hebrews, in Hebrews 8 and verses... Uh, Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 12, he talks about the new covenant, and in verses 10 through 12, he actually identifies the new covenant and says, these are the four promises of the new covenant. That should be in parentheses, and what he's saying is that this is the, this, these are the gospel promises that bridged both covenants. These, this, these are the gospel promises that bridged that were, the, that were the promises in, in this era of the covenant and in this era of the covenant. It's like, a, it's like in parentheses there. Saying this is the gospel. The, the, that's, that gospel was operative even though this, the, uh, uh, this was all a, a ritual pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. The promises didn't change. The gospel didn't change. But the symbols did change. And today we have, the, we have communion service and we have baptism in place of, of circumcision and in place of the priesthood and sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> so that's how Hebrews um, fits in with, fits, fits, fits into the picture here. Now I know someone could wonder, well, did Paul have all, did these writers have this kind of model in mind when they were writing? No, I don't think so. Paul came out of a very legalistic experience 
So when he's writing, he's writing constantly from this perspective. If Paul wrote Hebrews, and Ellen White refers to Paul uh, writing Hebrews, whether she was trying to make that point or whether she was just assuming the, that that's what other, uh, there were people back, the, most of the writers back in her day believed that Paul wrote Hebrews, but today that's not very well um, accepted. But he may have written Hebrews, and if he did, he was talking, when he's focusing on the, on the priesthood and the sacrifices, then um, Christ is the fulfillment of those. He's also the fulfillment of these promises, but that doesn't mean that these promises aren't still, that God isn't still working to write his law in our hearts and minds, and these promises are still in the process of being fulfilled in our lives. Those have not changed. God's law hasn't changed, his promises haven't changed, even though the ritual and the symbolism um, uh, that, that uh, represent those things have changed. Well, let's look at one more. Let's look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. And then we'll um, probably be, I will not have time to do more than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Another one of those very difficult passages. In fact, one of the authors in this Sabbath book that we're working on right now said about this passage that nothing could be clearer, he said, that then this is showing a stark contrast between the Old and New Covenants, the historical ages, and uh, he was supporting this particular viewpoint here and said 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is the clearest evidence we have that, that this model is correct. So we need to take a look at this, and, and it began with, with verse... Uh, we began in verse, uh, we could actually begin back in verse um, 3 through verse 16. So if someone has that and would read that to us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll try to look at how this applies. Okay, 
Let's look at, uh, at some of the contrasts in 2 Corinthians 3 between these two covenants that he's talking about. So let's just look down through that and give me any contrast you see between the two covenants he's talking about there. Okay, which one has the veil? Okay. Is a veil involved in the old? Which is on stone, which is in the heart? Okay, on stone. And, the, and, the, and the, the idea is that it's only on stone. And this is in the heart, engraved in the heart. Okay, this kills. And? Gives life, this gives life. Anything else? Ministry of death, and which one is that one? The old, ministry of death. And ministry of spirit. Okay, condemnation. Righteousness, okay, this is glorious. And this is more glorious. Okay, does that pretty well do it? It gives us a very good start. Um, any clues here? as to whether this is talking about, uh, um, oh, it mentions, doesn't it mention Moses here? Okay, where's Moses? The left. So that seems to be, that sounds like, that sounds like it's talking about uh, um, historical, doesn't it? The fact that it has a direct reference to Moses. You remember when we're back in Galatians 4, something I failed to point out when we were back there, that with these two, you have, you have Jerusalem and you have Mount Sinai mentioned on this side, but who do you also have mentioned in the old and new here? Hagar and, and Sarah, and you have Abraham. So what's using, it's using Abraham's experience with Hagar as an example of an old covenant experience, Abraham's ex, ex, experience with Sarah as a new covenant experience. Does that make sense? It's, say, it's still Abraham, um, which, and that doesn't fit this model at all, because Abraham here is pure faith, according to this particular model, and this is just obedience, and you know, they think of it legalistic obedience. But according to Galatians 4, you have Hagar as a representative. Abraham's experience with Hagar is a representative of the Old Covenant, so you, we know he's talking about Old Covenant experience there. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, yep. Now, can we find anything similar here? Well, look at, first of all, look at uh, 
1 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, first of all, you, you, we have to ask this question. We have to say, if this, if this is talking about what God gave his people at Sinai, that God gave them something that was only to be on stone, not in their hearts, something that kills, something that's, that's uh, a ministry of death, something that's, con- that's condemnation, it had a certain glory to it, uh, tied to Moses, but this is all, uh, except for this, that it had a certain glory to it. And this is the reason 2 Corinthians 3 is so difficult and that the reason that, the, that the, those who have this, this model here um, like 2 Corinthians 3 so much is it says this had a certain glory to it. Therefore, even though it had all those bad things to it, there was a certain element of glory to it. But once the new covenant came, then, then that's much more glorious. Um, but we're going to see, we're going to see, we're going to see how this actually was, was intended by Paul to be taken in just a moment. But I want you to look at chapter 4, or, or um, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 again. And what is 2 Corinthians 3, 16 saying? When you turn to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. What are some terms we'd use for being turning to the Lord? What's that? Repentance. Repentance. What? Being born again, exactly. Um, being born again. Conversion, right? Repentance. Maybe there's some other terms we'd use. Uh, same Justification, we do a whole series of things. But what that's describing, what 2 Corinthians 3 is describing is when, you turn, when someone turns to the Lord, they cross from this experience to this experience. This whole experience is represented by the veil, this whole, this whole relationship to God, that the old covenant experience, the old covenant way of relating to God, that's a, that's a way that leads to death. It leads to death. At conversion, this changes. This is now the operation, it's the Holy Spirit's work, this is being born of the Spirit. That's what conversion is. So you go, it, conversion is the turning point from this to this. Well, what way is this glorious? Well, and this more glorious. Look back at 2 Corinthians. In order to get the wider context here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and read verses uh, 14 through 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Where's our microphone here? Okay, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Okay, now this is a key passage. Because follow me here for a minute. When Paul says in verse 13, we are to God the aroma or the fragrance of Christ. Who is the we he's talking about there? Those in the new covenant. The ministers of the new covenant. Those that he describes in verse three of the, or verse uh, six of chapter three. Um, he's saying, we are the aroma of Christ. So if you're converted, 
If you're a genuine Christian, you're the aroma of Christ, right? You're the fragrance of Christ. And who are you the, the fragrance of Christ to? Well, you're the fragrance of Christ, but, but who, uh, read the rest of the verse. Who are we the fragrance of Christ to? To everyone. To everyone. Who does everyone include? According to the language there, of the, of the verse. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, what is the aroma of Christ? His sacrifice? Yeah, it could be just the Christian influence and so forth, but I'm gonna suggest it's the gospel. Once you're converted, then you carry the gospel with you wherever you go, and that's the aroma of Christ. And the aroma of Christ, is it a, in verse 16, it describes how the aroma of Christ comes through to two different kinds of people. And the aroma of Christ, is, that, is the aroma of Christ, when you think of the aroma of Christ, the gospel of Christ, is that a wonderful thing or, or a terrible thing? What's that? Awesome, okay. Is it awesome to everybody? Is it a wonderful smell, so to speak? He's, 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 he's translating to kind of an aroma, a smell, fragrance. Is it that the same way to everybody? What does it say in verse 16? To some it's the what? To some it is the smell of death. You mean to tell me that the gospel produces death for some people? How is the gospel death for some people and life to others? It's totally how they relate to it, right? If you reject the gospel, what does the gospel end up being for you? An instrument of death, is that not true? That's exactly what this is saying. So Paul is saying that even, even as ministers of the new covenant, that as they took the gospel to people, that for some people that very wonderful, beautiful gospel, the aroma of Christ, was for some people the smell of death and the other people the smell of life, right? Depending on how they responded to the very same gospel, is that true? Now, let me ask you this. Is there a glory in sharing the gospel with people even though it leads them to, even though they end up rejecting it? Is there a glory in that? When you're taking the gospel to people, some accept, some don't, is it only that you've done a glorious thing by sharing with those who accepted? Was there a glory in sharing the gospel with people whether they accepted or not? There is. Is there a greater glory? Is it more glory to sharing the gospel with people who accept it? Absolutely. Now, what Paul's doing here in 2 Corinthians 3, he, he's talking... Who were the Corinthians he's writing to? Was that the whole city of Corinth that he's writing to? Who's he writing to in Corinth? He's writing to the believers, right? When he was there, certain people, when he shared the gospel, accepted it. And he's writing back to those people that accepted it. Is that right? When Moses gave the covenant that God gave him for the people, who was he sharing that with? With the entire nation. Were they all believers? The entire nation of Israel? They were not, right? Was there still a glory that he was sharing it with them? It was, even with those who turned against it, even with those who accepted it legalistically. There was a glory in that. But can you see where if you have, a, if you're, the, when you're presenting the gospel to a community of believers, there's a greater glory than to those who, re who rejected it. 
in that sense, in that sense, this can be said to be more glorious because, because these are, he's writing to people who accepted it. And even the gospel itself was a ministry of death. So the, the gospel that, that, uh, that Paul preached was a ministry of death to people who didn't accept it. He says that there in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 14. And so right here in this very, and if you look at, at 2 Corinthians 4, when it talks about the veil, and this is a little clearer in the NIV than it is in some other translations, but somebody please read verses 3 and 4 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians 4. Where's our microphone now? Okay. King James? Okay. Okay, now it's a little clearer in the NIV. And I think it's exactly the same Greek word. Because the NIV says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Here's what the evangelical position is. They're saying that the covenant God made with his people at Sinai was the veil. And as long as you are, as long as you are attentive to anything that God did for, made with his people, any part of the covenant God made with people at Sinai, you have a veil over your, over your eyes. You cannot see the true gospel. That's absolutely not true. It was Satan that was veiling their eyes and blinding them to the true gospel, not the, not the covenant God made with his people. This covenant God made with his people here was a gospel covenant. It had the covenant promises embedded in it. It was, God, it was a covenant to save them. And so the, the, the old covenant that Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians 3 is very clearly this experience of rejecting the gospel or accepting it legalistically and accepting it only legalistically. Does that, is that clear from just the, those passages that we read? It has to be that way. It's the only other way it can be understood and be understood accurately. So that's, uh, and you can go through all the difficult passages. I have a chapter in the book here where I take every single difficult passage in the New Testament where it sounds like it's talking negatively about, about the law God made with people at Sinai and showing in this model how it makes perfect sense when you understand it experientially. It makes no sense if you understand it in a historical pattern. This absolutely does not work in terms of when you look at these passages carefully, this is a failed model. It doesn't work. And that, that model does work. That's exactly what's going on um, when, when you look at it. So what I would want to leave you with from this study is, uh, and then I'll read a story, uh, and we're, we'll be done here. What I want to leave you with is simply, um, because this can just be a lot of head knowledge material, unless it's doing what God intended it to do, and that is to, um, it is. and that is to be just God reassuring us again, reassuring every one of us that this is, the, this is our inheritance. The fact you're born into this world, this is what God promises you. This is what God offers you. 
When Jesus died, he left you in his will. Your name is in his will. And this is what you've inherited from him, a promise that he will write his law in your heart and mind. He'll forgive your sins. You, he will be your God. You, you will be his people. He's promised you that. And that you have a share in his mission to share Christ with the world and looking forward to the day when everyone's going to know him. And, and you can be in the kingdom with him when, when there'll be no need anymore to share with, with your neighbors. And throughout your lifetime, God is trying to, to um, make these promises more and more fulfilled in your life. So you're constantly going to be, going to be uh, sensed that the Holy Spirit is calling you higher and higher. Um, that's the, that is what's, uh, uh, that's what the new covenant offers us. Every one of us have a birthright to the new covenant and, and to experience Christ and total dependence on Christ in the new covenant. Legalism, which is the challenge for many of us, not that other things aren't a challenge as well, in this life because the sinful nature is constantly pulling at us one way or the other. Um, and Luther said legalism was like oil in his bones. Um, it's something we have to learn because it's just the, that's the natural tendency of the human heart to depend on our, on our own efforts. And this isn't just churchy stuff. If you were to go door to door and try to talk to people about the gospel or even just, just in interactions with people talk about the gospel, People who, have, who are turned off at religion, like Sebastian, when he, before he thought they were, all Christians were hypocrites. Um, what people think and what they'll often tell you is, well, I may not go to church and may not live like those hypocrites, but, but I try to live a good life and, and I think that if there's a hereafter, if there's a heaven, I think I'll, you know, I think I'll be okay. Because what people are doing in, in essence, if you don't have Christ and his righteousness, you have to rely on, quotes, living a good life at least good enough so that if there's an afterlife, it's the whole karma, karma concept that you, know, you do good, good comes back to you. Not only in this life, but in the afterlife, it'll come back to you. That's the whole karmic principle. And um, it's, it's just the, the natural tendency of the unconverted human heart, and even, even with conversion, when the sinful nature is still raising its ugly head, um, there's a tendency to depend upon on our goodness and uh, where we are good. The fact that we don't do this, we don't do that, and so forth. Or we've, you know, we've <coughs> done community service today, we've helped people, we've had a Bible study with somebody, to rely on that. And uh, we have to learn constantly over and over and over that, the, that, that Jesus and his righteousness is everything to us, totally 100%. And any goodness that, that he's able to experience any positive influence he's able to have through us and on someone else comes because the Holy Spirit is operative in our life. And um, the, the whole experience of the Christian life is learning at increasing levels our dependence upon Christ and how he is absolutely everything to us. I'm gonna read and share with you a very uh, brief story here and then we're done. Uh, Pastor Dwight shared this story with me. If you were here several years ago when I came and was presenting some of these things at the uh, Pearson Lectureship, you will have heard this. <clears throat> um, and if you're ever in a homiletics class that he teaches at the seminary, if there's anybody here who goes to the seminary and you're in a homiletics class and you hear this, you have to act like you've heard it for the first time. Because <clears throat> when I was here four years ago, at the end of that, at the Pearson Lectureship, I remember he told this story. I didn't have the details and I wanted to tell it here. So I called him and he said, 
I don't want to give you that story because I share it with my homiletics class and they've never heard it before. I said, Dwight, just, just this one time, I'll never use it again. And so he gave it to me and then I've been using it ever since. <laughs> so, but, but, but I've never told him, so if, you, if you're ever in one of, classes, one of his classes, you have to act like you haven't heard it. So anyway, I did my own research on it too and found out it's absolutely true and I have a few details that he doesn't have. Um, during the late 1700s and early 1800s, tuberculosis was a scourge in Europe. It was taking thousands of lives, and it was called the black lungs disease, not to be confused with minor's disease. The only way at the time they had to diagnose the disease was for a physician to put his ear to the bare chest of a patient. In extreme cases, a doctor with a trained ear could detect the sounds of the disease, but by then it was too late. You could imagine since all doctors were men, putting their ear to the bare chest of a patient caused embarrassment for at least 50% of their patients. Dr. Rene Lenick was a young and very bright Paris physician who developed a specialty in respiratory diseases. He studied under, studied under Napoleon's personal physician. In 1819, he wrote a book on pulmonary diseases, particularly how to diagnose pulmonary diseases by listening to the chest. <clears throat> and one expert says very little has been learned about this science since he wrote his book. He had a desire to save his female patients from embarrassment during the diagnostic process and to uh, also diagnose uh, the disease earlier. As the story goes, one day he observed a deaf man listening through a cone that he had placed in his ear. So he had this little cone, and people would speak into the cone. Dr. Lenick asked to see the cone. He examined the material that was made of it. He exper exper experimented with it, and he developed a tube. He could put in one end of his ear, put one end of it in his ear, and the other on the chest of the patient and he could hear what was going on in their lungs. This was the origin of the stethoscope. Once it was available, it also enabled physicians to make earlier diagnosis of TB so they could treat it earlier with whatever treatment was available at the time. But Dr. Lenick then became the world's master of diagnosing tuberculosis. One day, a very wealthy Australian rancher brought his little girl to Dr. Lenick. She was very sick. He put the stethoscope to her chest and listened. Then he turned to the father and said, I have some very bad news for you. She has advanced TB, and she will not live much longer. The rancher grew angry. How can you tell by just sticking that tube on her chest? And Dr. Lenick told him, TB sounds like wind blowing through a wheat field. Well, the rancher knew what that sound was like, wind blowing through a wheat field. So Dr. Lenick handed the stethoscope to the rancher and said, here, you listen to my chest, and then listen to your daughter's chest. <coughs> and so the rancher took the stethoscope, put one end of it to his ear, the other to Dr. Lennox's chest, and listened. And he said, what did you say tuberculosis sounds like, Doc? He said, it sounds like wind blowing through a wheat field. He said, do you mean like what I'm hearing right now? For the first time, Dr. Lennox took the scope, put it to his own chest, and heard the sound of advanced TB, and died within the year at age 45. I think of that when I, you know, write the book on this subject and present these seminars and, and some of you will be doing similar kinds of things in your own spheres. Think about how we can be experts and die of the very disease we're trying to help people with. <coughs> and my prayer is that never happens to any of us. It's the danger. Satan will get us any way he can. And that's why learning to be constantly dependent upon Jesus, constantly, 100% upon Jesus, is our only safety.
Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this group that has stayed by for this study and realize, God, it's not easy. I don't know why it wasn't simplified for us, but it wasn't. But the war of the spirit and the flesh that's taken place um, in our own hearts, we feel it, God, besides the way it was described in Scripture. That war between the spirit and the flesh is, um, is at work in all of our lives. And I just pray that, that you will increasingly continue to fulfill the promises that you've given us. Thank you that we don't have to wait for that ultimate fulfillment to know that we're Christians, to know that we're your children. If the Spirit hadn't done something in our hearts, God, we wouldn't be here right now. Wouldn't be in this class. They wouldn't be in classes all over the campus and, and uh, at GYC. Um, you've definitely done something in our life. Please do not let us do anything that would hinder that work. I want for myself, I want for each one here, um, and for this whole conference, and our families, those we love and pray for, that we continue to come up higher at the invitation of your spirit. Whatever is necessary, God, to happen in our life, for that to take place, we want to give you permission to do that. And thank you for your grace. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, and increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.